you know, you put up your your one landing page and you never test it, assuming that it's a very important page for you or whatever. Same thing for your vision or your strategy is is test your your comms just like you test your tactics in a way because they're equally, if not more important. Hello and welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and today I am super excited to share with you my conversation with Scott Towsley. Scott, he's a growth badass. If you don't know him, he's the VP of growth at Persephone, which is in the climate change space. He was previously an operator in residence in the Reforge network for a long time. He worked at HubSpot before that. He co-hosted a podcast with Kieran Flanagan. He was head of startup growth. He worked on the Signals product as part of Brian Balfour's team. He's got a wide range of growth experience. And the reason why I'm so excited to chat with Scott is because Scott has done something he describes as crossing the chasm between being a growth operator, executor, tactician, specialist, into now being a growth leader. And that's a lot of what we talked about in our conversation, the intersection in transition from being a specialist working in growth to now being an executive representing the growth capability. We talked about what skills make up a strong growth leader, how you can work on those skills. We talked about some of the common landmines that people step in in these types of roles and why, the, why they turn over so frequently. And we talked about how to balance work-life working at an early stage company. It's an amazing conversation. I know you're going to love it. Let's jump right in. Want to take a second and thank Mad Kudu for sponsoring the show. The average SaaS business has a hybrid motion these days. You know, when I was head of growth at Wistit and at Postscript, although we called ourselves PLG, there was a sales team at both companies. Both companies did some outbound. We did inbound. There was the product-led freemium or free trial motion and wrangling all that stuff to understand lead scoring and quality and PQL routing is a bear. And when I worked at Postscript, we had a Stanford PhD, had a PhD in data science, one of the smartest people I've ever met, spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together this insane predictive model using our behavioral data to understand who was likely to convert and to upgrade. And it took weeks of doing this. We weren't really able to adjust it after the fact, and it ended up being something that was hard to maintain. And what's great is that now there's these whole suite of tools out there that can help you do this way faster. So Madkudu is typically the one that I send my clients to that if I had in my previous world, this head of growth would have made my life way easier. And what's nice is that they balance the hybrid motion really well. So if you're trying to wrangle PQLs, PQAs, and figure out lead scoring across your hybrid model, check out Madkudu. It's where I send my clients. This episode of the Delivering Value podcast is brought to you by Novatic. If you're listening to this and you have followed me online, it should be no surprise that Novatic is a sponsor. Talk about the interactive demo space all the time. As a former two-time head of growth, I learned pretty quickly that there's a huge percentage of signups that create an account, poke around for a couple minutes, and leave and never come back. If you survey these folks, they usually say, hey, I just wanted to see the product in action for a few minutes. I'm not ready to buy. I don't want to upload my stuff. I just wanted to see it. And so creating some version of your product that's ungated, that people can play with on your website, tends to be super helpful for that population of people. It increases the quality of your users. It weeds out all the clunkers, so from clouding up your data, and it starts the onboarding process way before someone even gets into the product. It's a huge part of the growth operating system, and if you're looking for help building this, so you don't have to take months and months doing it in-house like my engineers did, use Novatic. They create third-party tools that help you do exactly this. I send a lot of my advising clients their way, and they're a great product. Started just graduating from uh, undergrad. I thought I wanted to work in the music industry. Went out to LA, worked in the music industry for six months, 
hated it. Very odd, odd culture was not for me, right? He said, uh, what do I like? I like the beach. Okay, I'm going to go to San Diego. So I went to San Diego, got a job at a content marketing agency. It's called Siege Media. Uh, it's still around. They're doing amazing. Worked there for a year. And then I joined HubSpot doing content marketing specifically for a experimental product called Sidekick. And that product was led by Brian Belfort. At the time, you know, I was reading Brian's blog. It's called Co-Elevate at the time and was learning a ton and basically just got lucky that him and uh, another person, Hussein, offered a job. So I started there. Uh, I worked on content marketing for about a year. Then I became interested in copywriting. And so started doing the copywriting side specifically for building our first PQL model at HubSpot. And so it was myself, this guy, Mike Peachy, who um, done awesome things at HubSpot and beyond. He's at Reforge now. And Sam Mawizic, who's at uh, GitLab right now. This is kind of the three of us plus a handful of other people were kind of building out the first PQL model at HubSpot. So we did that. Then I kind of transitioned back into freemium acquisition for different channels and doing more experimental. How do we find the net new channel, not just organic and not just paid? Because that was powering you know 80% of all the growth. And so that turned into an affiliate program that I kind of adopted over time. It turned into tackling the WordPress ecosystem um, and building a WordPress plugin. So really just experimenting with a ton of different channels, did that for a while. Then I went over to our startups program and worked on the startups program for about a year. In fall of 2020, our daughter was born. And was, you know at that time, I'd been at HubSpot for probably five, six years-ish. And I was just thinking about, you know, what's next? Like, what could I do next? And just timing-wise, it couldn't have worked out better slash worse as our daughter was born in fall of 2020. And there were some pretty nasty fires in LA County at that time. And that's where we live right now. And so we were bringing her home from the hospital and there's ash all over the patio. Uh, It was really nasty. And so I had some time off and started looking more into climate change and what all of that meant. Then that turned into, okay, well, what are the people or companies who are out there? What are the markets that are out there? Which turned into carbon accounting which turned into Persephone, which is where I'm at today. So try to give a somewhat abbreviated version. And I want to ask more about your current gig, but before I do, you talked about how you were part of this early team at HubSpot working on Sidekick, which I think eventually for folks who don't know, morphed into like their current sales part Mm -hmm. of their current platform, right. right? Basically. And what's super cool. So we didn't overlap at HubSpot, or at least I don't think that we did. But I remember in the early days, Brian would get up there and he would share like, hey, we are, we're building this big company here and we want to create a roster of people who go off and do other amazing things. And he would use the parallel of talking about PayPal, <laughs> I think, at that time. And he would talk about, I think it was like the PayPal mafia or something. And he would put it up there and he'd be like, we want this. So like, if you work here and you outgrow your role, great. We want that to happen. We want to create other stars. We want to fund people that are starting their own business. And so it's cool that you you saw that, like, right? The people that you mentioned, like Mike Peachy, like Anam. I've got on and done all these amazing things. You were part of that. Yeah, it was a ton of awesome people have done really great stuff, right? And even Brian Halligan himself, yeah, he just yeah. started Propeller, right? Propeller is a really cool VC firm on the on the west or sorry, East Coast. 
um, that's helping fund ocean projects that will help with the climate change problem. So, you know, Brian himself is actually a really interesting example of that. But yeah, the that culture was totally true at HubSpot. And, you know, spending a year or so away from HubSpot really feel grateful, uh, which I'm you know, sure you do too, with the time that, you know, I was fortunate to spend there because there are so many incredible, sharp, talented people that I learned so much from. So I'm very grateful uh, that I had the chance to to work there. Yeah, I feel the same. And I describe it to my network the same way you did. I more or less got lucky that I kind of ended up there in the position that I did. And I owe a lot of my career after that to that luck, basically. Exactly. Uh, could not agree more with that. I just got very lucky. Yeah. All right. So tell me a little bit more about your role today. So VP of growth at Persephone, what does a week in the life look like for a VP of growth at a company at your scale? Yeah. I mean, typically if a VP of growth, usually it has a fork into two paths. It usually forks into marketing or it forks into product. At some point, it depends on the business model and the go-to-market. My role is doing a little bit of both, actually, and it could just be the nature of any type of earlier-ish stage company, right? Kind of Series B stage company, where, you know, on one hand, thinking about how do we reduce friction in the product experience and, you know, considering any net new product lines or reducing friction to help people get more value uh, from the product. A lot of user research, a lot of pulling data, a lot of pulling product data out and connecting it to other go-to-market systems. HubSpot, good example. From what I can tell, head of growth job openings exploded when the pandemic hit. Uh, it's like, I don't know if it was just the nature of PLG growing or if it was companies got a little bit nervous and they started looking for more efficiency with their model. And so they started decreasing sales, increasing on the self-service side. And now what I'm seeing, so that happened in early and mid-2020. And now what I'm seeing are a lot of those same companies hiring their second head of growth. And so I'm seeing the tenure for heads of growth, people like us, shrink. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? Like, why is the tenure so short? Why do these roles turn over so often? Yeah, great question. Elena Verna put out an interesting uh, meme. Did you see the meme, the clown meme I've that she seen, posted? I, I, I follow her memes. I don't know, I, I don't know the one that you're it talking funny. about. It was funny. Uh, we can maybe uh, share a link you know, afterwards. It's really funny. Basically, just summary that, a lot of turnover, you know, frankly, in my opinion, it's just lack of expectation setting where we're hiring a VP of growth, but the person who's doing the hiring doesn't actually know what that means. Therefore, they think they're hiring someone who does absolutely everything incredibly well, which is fairly unicorn-ish slash impossible. Yeah, that doesn't it's exist. Typically, right, you know, you have, it's, Lack of setting that expectation up front of what is possible, where is the focus, where do we want to go? And what Elena, you and others have shared many times in the past is that there is this fork in a way for growth, right? It's like it's, it could not be a more vague job title. And so there's, well, there's growth product and then growth marketing generally. And pe different people have different definitions of each one. Generally speaking, the model I have uh, in my mind based on just either HubSpot experience, chatting with friends, kind of the position I'm in right now, is usually you have growth marketing and growth product. And within those, there's two chunks, which is optimizing what's working really well, or there's taking bets on something that's net new, right? And so you have to have this more hypothesis-driven 
framework or thinking of, well, what is your hypothesis? Why do you believe that is true? And how can you test that to see if it's correct or not? Whether you're doing that, optimizing your search traffic or paid that is getting thousands, millions of visits per month, or you're creating something net new from scratch, a new product line, a going after a new channel. It's all this in the same ethos. And so I think that's what gets wrapped into this head of growth is this more hypothesis-driven work of optimize something that's doing a, a good enough job, but I think you could get a lot more juice out of it. And so you run tests to squeeze more out of it and then doing the net new. Where the turnover happens with these growth roles is not being able to set boundaries and limits of what is or isn't possible and or tying things back to output or outcomes or results relative to why you may uh, or why anyone may have been hired in the first place. So, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of it comes down to expectation setting, partly education, learn that's very important as well is the internal education of what is possible what isn't possible so in my experience as a coach those are some of the biggest missteps that i see just for what it's worth it's not so much that folks don't know the growth plays or the growth tactics you called it like the mix of growth marketing and growth product like typically folks know at least the 80 20 there if they get hired in these types of roles it's the other side it's how do i be a leader of this team not just a tactician and that's some of the stuff that I heard you say, tying the projects back to outcomes, setting the right expectations, making sure that you're sharing and disseminating information across the org. It's being a growth leader, not just a growth operator. Totally. And that's an interesting interesting take too, and aligned with what Reforge has talked about a lot with like the messy middle concept, right? Where you have these folks who are not necessarily early, but they're in this tran- transitory period getting either from senior IC into running a team or running a team into running a larger team. There's the, you know, the crossing the chasm type work where it's not really clear. And there's different frameworks that I've picked up over time, just observing and watching how other people run teams, which have been really, really helpful. Yeah. I think it's some of that stuff. And a lot of times I, I also see a pattern where junior mid-level growth folks just jump right into the work and they forget to do setting the expectations like you talked about or creating the strategy or the vision for the team. And they kind of just jump right into quick wins thinking, hey, as a as a growth marketer, as a growth PM, that got me a lot of attaboys for lack of a better term. And now I'm a leader <laughs> and I think that it's the same playbook, but it's something different. And so I'm wondering, how did you learn that? right? Because that's a pretty nuanced thing to pick up over time. Did you have mentors or leaders that you've looked up to in your career where you've picked that stuff up or did you just intuitively figure it out? Definitely did not intuitively figure it out. I can tell you that much. Uh, I screwed up quite a bit uh, many, many, many times and still continue to screw up a lot You know, <laughs> here and there. What I've tried to do is have a mixture. I can't say I've had formal mentors, more so people who I'm regularly talking to about whatever the problem is that I'm having at the time. So one of the mentors that I I did have, I guess I just never called them mentors, but I'm describing what a mentor is. Yeah, it's kind of a Uh, funny thing to ask someone to be your mentor. It's sort of like, you know, it's like kind of a formal term to put on a friendship. Usually it's, I have this problem. I've been thinking about it. I cannot really work through this. I'm feeling stuck. 
And so it's someone who I, who's been there, who's done that, who I can go back to, who can help provide some guidance. A couple people that I worked with formerly at HubSpot who were incredibly, incredibly helpful and some others outside. But I've always, when we were on, we both spent time at HubSpot and we're familiar with like Brian Halligan, right? And Darmesh, who the founders. Whenever we would have all hands meetings or they would be at Inbound, which is a big conference that HubSpot would run, I'd always try and take notes on what they talked about and why they talked about it and what they were trying to get what message they were delivering, right? And the ability to communicate something that's pretty complicated, very simply, is really challenging. It's tough for anyone to do that, right? There's like an Einstein quote <laughs> related to that. Uh, and so the people that I found have done a really good job being quote unquote leaders within a company do a good job at packaging some pretty complex topics into something that's very simple. So whenever I'd be watching or listening to someone who's doing that, I try to take notes and spend a little bit more time evaluating that and thinking about why they said what they said or why they did what they did. And then if it was someone who I would talk with regularly, like some of the mentors, then we would almost dissect why did they say that and what were they doing and just asking a little bit more pointed questions. So a mixture of observation taking notes and just asking specific questions related to it. Dude, I love this. And and more people should do this, right? When you see someone who has a really good example of a skill that you think is important, find ways to dissect it and discuss it with other people to figure out what is it? Am I seeing the same thing that you see or is it actually something different that my mind just can't take in for whatever reason? Is there a third step there? Like how do you work on that skill? Like when you go to apply it and you're creating a presentation or a talk, whether it's to your team or, or a larger part of the organization or whatever, how do you know if you've improved that skill of explaining complex topic to complex topics in a simple way? Because working in growth, mm. it's all pretty complex. Yeah, totally. One of the things I, we started doing recently at Persephone, which is where I'm at now, is when we're working through a fairly complex problem uh, that requires education, as part of it, where we need to work on explaining something to other people, which has been done in reverse thousands of times, right? Persephone works in carbon accounting. Carbon accounting is pretty complicated. I don't know anything about carbon accounting when I started. I know a little bit more now. And so I've gone through so many sessions. What we started doing to get feedback on this is to do these daily sessions where we will have almost pitches. So we'll pitch we'll pitch each other, right? Peers who have never seen something before. And then we ask for like a score. Hey, how easy was this to understand, right? Or how, you know, where are their stumbling blocks? And so we do these really rapid cycles of communication because our team thinks a lot about cross-functional communication, working with other teams. And so we try and have this internal focus group for comms where we can always be working on improving that. Now, that works for a small team. When it comes to external, um, such as doing a board presentation or you know an actual presentation at a conference or something, which has been many years since I've done that, it's really just the same thing, getting those rapid feedback cycles from someone who hasn't seen it before, just like when you're doing user research and you know someone who's never seen your product and you want them to have them walk through it and explain it. Same thing for a presentation. 
So depending on the importance of nailing the comms for that specific topic you're going over, having pretty rapid cycles, just like we would do on testing, you do the same thing for your your pitch or your vision or whatever the topic is that you're covering and just getting you know a few rounds of feedback there. I found that to help. That's awesome. So it's not just about getting a few reps under your belt and practicing the presentation, but it's really user testing the presentation mm-hmm. and then iterating mm-hmm. based on that feedback from people who meet your target audience, but aren't your target audience and haven't been biased by, by being too close to whatever it is that you're sharing. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just like how we run tests for user onboarding or landing page tests or whatever we're doing at the time, you can't discount the importance of crisp like communication with who you're working on. And so don't discount it by, you know, you put up your your one landing page and you never test it, assuming that it's a very important page for you or whatever. Same thing for your vision or your strategy is is test your your comms just like you test your tactics in a way, because they're equally, if not more important. So I totally agree. And I also chat with folks who will show me their growth, mission, vision, strategy, operating system stuff. And they'll be all excited to show it to me and I'll look at it and it'll be like six pages long, long paragraphs of information, kind of long rambling thoughts. Have you taken that same approach to verbal communication and applied it to written? Mm. Like when someone is doing a, just to recap, so I understand. So there, if someone shares you a six page document or a six page presentation. Well, I'm wondering for you. So you're talking about, hey, I saw Brian and Darmesh, incredible at presenting complex information in a simple way. I've taken this process so that I can get user feedback and refine my presentations. I'm wondering if you do something similar when you document a written strategy say, for example, something that you're going to use to enable and empower your team, maybe something that you're Mm. going to share and save in a notion or some kind of uh, document sharing system so that other folks who you don't get to present it to, but might read it when you're not around. Do you have a similar system for refining that type of communication? Absolutely. Um, It's the same thing, right? We kind of have drafts, feedback, drafts, feedback, drafts, feedback done, you know, same thing, presentations or docs. But of course, the trick is keeping it light and keeping it tight with who you're talking to because you have to make the ask fairly, not frictionless, but low friction to provide the feedback. So having pretty tight cycles is is important, but written or verbal, same process. I'm going to be vulnerable for a second. The first time I did this, uh, I was leading the growth team at Wistia. I was asked to present the strategy, next six-month strategy, something like that. I went into the lab you know, on a Saturday, I went to the coffee shop. I put my head down. I came back with that six page doc, chest up, chin up. I thought it was it. I presented it Mm -hmm. to the senior team and I got roasted. And it was like, it's unclear what you're doing. It's unclear why you're doing it. This makes no sense. We're not even sure that these are the right things. Has, Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. I don't think I'll get roasted by name dropping, but the two people who I worked with really closely at HubSpot were Kieran Flanagan and Matt Barbie. And they're just wonderful amazing people, both of them multiple times roasted me for too much detail in a presentation and not knowing your audience. Exact same scenario, right? Like going in and explaining the kitchen sink and they said, no one needs to know this, right? Like no one needs this level of detail. You might, not everyone else does. So learn your audience and make sure that you're explaining and pivoting your communication appropriately based on 
who you're talking to, right? You're talking to product, talk about retention. You're talking to the uh, sales team, talk about revenue, right? You're talking to email marketing, talk about week, uh, monthly active subscribers and you know click-through rate, right? Like pivot your comms based on who your audience is. And, you know, seems intuitive. It wasn't for me at all, right? Like it just, it didn't register and it took multiple reps to improve at that and still working on it uh, to this day. But yeah, uh, I've gotten roasted many times in this situation like that. Uh, But it's also great, right? Like the times where I've noticed the most change in my life personally or, you know, from a, a career context, I got roasted. I got roasted by someone or roasted by myself, frankly. <laughs> and it's great, right? Like those moments suck at the time, but it's helps kind of turn us into who we are, both professionally and personally. Yeah. You can't skip that stuff, even though it sucks in the moment and it makes you question your whole identity. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I've always been the expert. And now all of a sudden I, I'm terrible at this. You talked about the messy middle. I think that's part of it. Because you're used to communicating to other operators or other specialists, and that level of detail is helpful. It's actually enabling. When you communicate to people who are more senior or maybe less involved on other teams for alignment, uh, less is more. But that's a different skill. Totally. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is just knowing the knowing the outcome of who you're talking to and what they're what they're thinking about day in and day out, and trying your best to pivot the communication towards whatever they care about. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the leadership side of being in, in a head of growth type role. We've talked about improving your communication, both verbally and written. We've talked about enabling other teams. I'm curious if there are other patterns of strong leaders, either that you try to exemplify yourself or maybe people in your career who you've looked up to that have been really strong leaders in tech. Yes, definitely the simplifying the communication is one of them for sure. So I won't I won't touch on that again because we already covered that. I'll give two others. The second one are people who I tend to think of as like anti-authoritarians, those that really try to empower everyone on the team to be a leader and to make decisions and to fail, right? We're both parents now. And as much as I would love to hold my daughter's hand with everything she does. She has to run full steam on the basketball court and fall on her face in order to not learn that, right? Like uh, it's the same thing for not being overprotective for your team or for anyone where they can make decisions, fail, learn, right? And I've worked with those that give the utmost freedom and those that have the utmost tight way to run a team. And generally, it does seem that the more freedom that's provided tends to work better. It also depends on who's on the team. But having this this way to help people figure out the answer for themselves is another amazing skill set that I've seen. I guess the third one that I would say is the those that after you're talking to them, you walk away and you feel something. The pattern of those that I've personally admired, which may just go into, you know, my own thoughts is they're funny. Not necessarily that I'm walking away crying because I'm so inspired by their business talk that they gave. Usually it's not the case. A little more cringy, uh, depending on the context. But um, there is something with having a sense of humor that 
it works well in a leadership role. Again, I can't say that that's the most important or critical role uh, or attribute. I think you can more broadly summarize it that they make you really feel something uh, at the end of an interaction. But what is the most common theme that I've found to be those that I've admired? A sense of humor, uh, funny enough. I'm not sure why. I'm curious. I'd love to actually hear a little bit more because I've seen this too. And sometimes I think it's helpful if things are feeling a little tense, which they can in tech, right? Like we set pretty aggressive goals. There's often a lot of pressure, especially in growth roles. And the ability to keep things light is helpful, is valuable for everybody. Like the way that you feel, the way that the team performs, the way that uh, others perceive your team. And is it that or is it the storytelling side of things? It's a little both. If I had to pick one, more of the former. I think it's more of understanding what's the the thematic emotions that are happening in the room. Of course, it's a little harder when we're on, on Zoom, but what are the emotions that are happening in the room and how can we help shift and shape and mold those as well as we can? It can only do so much. Um, but those that do a really good job reading the room and helping move people along through the journey collectively, just like a great stand-up comedian does. You know, there's there's just so much we can we can learn from other professions. Uh, like uh, I was thinking about stand-up comedians, right? There's uh, one of the you know one of the mistakes that I definitely made early on was over indexing on the marketing or growth or whatever side of the learning and becoming so heads down on the tactical side not taking a step back in learning or listening or studying other professions of sorts right like or just enjoying right stand up comedy war books you know and like there's there's no there's no better place to learn about strategy than those that from a military standpoint right like not to say that we should be running a business with a militant mindset but in terms of strategy and understanding you know, first, second order, third order consequences of making decisions, spending time to get out of the tactics of whatever the profession is, which in our case would be like a growth marketing product profession and spending a good chunk of learning energy and time going in sprints. So I try to go in quarterly sprints of learning on a specific topic. And then I usually try and pivot to the next thing or double down and do it for another quarter. Yeah, you know, I've fell down different rabbit holes of copywriting, behavioral science type work, military. So it's just something that I've tried to make sure I'm finding the right balance, not not becoming too narrowly focused on the uh, the roles that we're in. I love that. I remember reading at some point that Kip Bodner, for those who don't know, the CMO at HubSpot was taking improv classes. I remember at some point, I think when he had maybe just become the CMO or shortly afterwards as part of improving, I don't know, I don't want to speak for him, but improving the way that he presented himself and probably made the room feel. Yeah, huge. There's uh, two people I know of that, to your point earlier of like, what is a strong leader that actually have an improv background? One is Adam Grenier and another is uh, John, who is an executive at, at HubSpot. And you can tell, right? You can tell. It's it's a really interesting background for people that do come from improv. 
because shit happens every day on the, sorry, uh, excuse my language. Uh, things happen every day on the job that we need to pivot and react to quickly. And so it is interesting finding people who have, have that background, do a really nice job improving, you know, in those situations. Earlier in our convo, you talked about prioritization also being one of the main skills that are important for roles like yours. And I imagine even more so as a parent, right? So before we started recording, you and I talked, uh, I'm a parent, you're a parent, you've got a few kids. How has your ability to prioritize changed as you've become a parent and had your kids get older? The hours have to be shorter, right? You cannot prior, you know, when I was a little younger, I could work from when I woke up to when I went to bed, right? With kind of some on and offs in between. And in fact, you probably got promotions because of that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Maybe. Who knows? It's not possible as, as a parent. Like you cannot do that. And if you do, you'll have a lot of significant regrets later in your life. Right. And so finding what is the right balance of what is the maximum, what's your maximum threshold of which you can work in. That's the first. Uh, one of my mentors, when I told him I was leaving to a, to a startup, uh, startup at this stage, he said, are you ready to get divorced? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm actually not at all. That sounds horrible. He said, well, you better set the right expectations up front or you will get divorced. Uh, and I thought that was, it was one of the best pieces of advice. So much great advice came from him. Uh, one of the best pieces of, of advice, right? Cause finding the balance not just between spending time with your kids, but spending time with your partner and making sure that relationship is strong and healthy. It's just as important as your kids. So it was really great. I'm so happy he said that, right? Because it allowed us to set good boundaries and bandwidth and make sure that we're on the same page with everything. Once that's done, that's like the first step, at least in my mind, um, is setting those personal guardrails. Then it becomes, okay, well, what is the most high impact output that we can drive here. And then it gets into, well, you build the models, which I think every, many of the kind of people who would be listening to this are aware of, of kind of building out different models and then picking on where are the most high leverage points that you can work on. So for example, I can give a, maybe a HubSpot example here. One of the things we were trying to figure out at the time was how can we find new a new acquisition channel that scales pretty well, a new user acquisition channel that scales pretty well outside of organic and paid. And so one of the bets that we, one of the hypotheses we had at the beginning was WordPress powers a third of the internet. A lot of our customers are SMBs, they're a little bit smaller. We had a WordPress plugin, it had no love, didn't really support it, didn't really think about go to market with it. So we think about that a little bit more. And so we spent a lot of time and cycles thinking about that under the assumption that, okay, well, I mean, think about the TAM. Uh, there's quite a few WordPress websites that are out there. Could we spend more energy uh, on that? And it, and it ended up taking the plugin from being, you know, left in the dust, the hundredth most popular plugin to, I want to say, is in the top two or sorry, top three is number two or number three at the time. Not sure where it's at now. But that was a, where do we focus? Where do we spend our energy? Where can we get the most leverage and upside? 
just the overall volume of people who were there if we got it right, which that's where all the iterations and cycles were. If we got it right, there was a lot of interesting potential. And then, of course, I had to think about the value per new user and how much that would bring in and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's really just starting with the model and finding those leverage points and just obsessing there. And we have a couple examples that we're thinking about right now at Persephone too that are very high leverage that we could focus on. And it sounds like you've taken a similar iterative approach to your own personal work-life balance. It's kind of what I heard you say at the beginning there. In addition to taking that same approach and applying it to tactical growth challenges, it sounds like you've also taken that and applied it to your own work-life balance, which I think is one of the things that folks have a really tough time doing, especially at early stage companies. It's hard. It's it's very hard at early stage companies, uh, in particular trying to find it, trying to find the balance. It's a little easier, you know. Frankly, you can get lost in the shuffle at a big company. Uh, you can. It's not possible <laughs> at a smaller company, right? And it just depends on, you know. I I think a big separation is the ability to prioritize, and it's really difficult, very difficult to find that what is the right thing to work on. But building out those predictive models does help a lot. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. Which makes sense. At this point in your career, for a lot of folks listening to this, you've probably made it compared to where a lot of folks are at, right? VP of growth at a really sweet company, previous growth experience. What does career growth mean to you at this point? Mm, that's a good question. The One of the pieces of advice that I had, um, I believe it was from Brian Belfort directly, is just optimize for learning in your career. And make sure that you're always in a place where if you know too much, and this is now my own phrasing, I'm not uh, quoting Brian at this point. If you, if you know too much, by being the smartest in the room, it gives you a lot of leverage and it can help financially. There's a cutoff, right? Like there's a cutoff for whoever in the world of what is enough, what is enough for anyone. And then you start to look for meaning elsewhere. And the meaning that really keeps on giving in a way is the learning side of it. And so what I always try and do is carve out time in a day, I try to build a habit around it. It's shifted over the years, but for now it's right when I wake up, uh, right when I wake up, I have one hour. I'll be reading something, watching something, listening to something of whatever I want to work on. Not a morning person that could go into it because I'm not awake <laughs> enough to, to learn. Um, but always, instead of reading the news, I try and have more pointed, specific learning outcomes that I'm looking for from a career growth uh, standpoint. And that changes a lot, right? But have, building in that habit for learning helps with what career growth means for me personally. And in terms of scope, Right, thinking about what's the most critical problem that you want to work on long term. The latest rabbit hole I've gone on is the U.S. Uh, and China tensions and in st- strategy, and how different leaders in the government um, think about navigating the challenges with China. And one of the interesting, uh, there's a book by Ray Dalio that was really good. Um, there's another one who's a former head of defense in the US who's thinking about this. One of the interesting patterns with China and something that's been talked about quite a bit is the 100-year marathon. And 1950 kind of set a 100-year goal to become the economic superpower in the country, in the world. And so by 2050, they could achieve that milestone. 
um, and everything was set on that hundred year plan that they had, right? It was not a 10 year plan. It was not a three year plan. It was a hundred year plan that spans generations. This is really interesting. And so in terms of career too, you're not always going to plan for everything. You're always going to get value planning for everything. But to solve really big problems, to be a Elon Musk of the world, uh, which I do not necessarily have that aspiration, to be the Elon Musks of the world, you have to think really long-term and focus your energy there. For me, you ask the question, what does career growth mean? For me, it's, it's really focused on climate change, right? And it's a pretty big problem. It's a big problem that spans many countries, many industries, individuals, businesses, everything. And so, you know, an outcome that I'm hoping for is that globally we can help get to much lower emissions. We're not going to get to net zero necessarily, but much lower emissions by the time my career is over. And so I think of how can I position, how can I find the most high leverage activities where I can personally help. The fraction of how much I'm going to help is a thousandth of 1%, right? And one person. But it, it does provide some grounding for thinking about career development and where to focus because it's not about where am I going? It's where are we collectively going and how can I do a small part chipping in there? And it's helped a lot with um, kind of grounding and focus. I love that. So it's not just thinking about how can I have a big impact in my role? How can I have a big impact in my company? But it's about how can I have a big impact on something much bigger in the world in this case, in all of our worlds. Mm -hmm. I, I love that, man. Yeah. So just collectively, right? Like we're all trying to work on the same problem together to zoom out, really zoom out and think about what is that thing that you want to spend a good chunk of your time doing and you will likely not have the answer right away. I, I can't say I definitely have the answer, but I have a direction of where I want to go. Love that. Dude, thank you for coming on, sharing a little bit of your thoughts, your philosophy, your experience. It's all good stuff. For those who are listening who want to follow or interact with you, where should we send them? Uh, it's a funny question. I, I had a podcast for a while and I would always ask the same question. Everyone said Twitter. And so I was on Twitter a lot and I had to get off of Twitter because it, I would be playing with our daughter and I would be on Twitter. So uh, my answer is not Twitter. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, just probably on LinkedIn. Was realistically, is the easiest place. Add me on there. Right on. Well, dude, thank you for coming on. Appreciate the time. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. It's fun. Cool, man. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.